Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. And usually I would say sitting next to me is MLB.com national editor Matt Myers. But Matt is on a very well-deserved vacation. Uh, so this week I have a, a very fun guest. We have Tom Tango sitting here right across from me. Uh, you may remember Tom from being on the show about six months ago. On what I believe was your very first day of work at MLB.com, we shoved you in a studio and made you talk to us. Uh, if you don't know Tom, Tom is our senior data architect. Uh, and you can follow him at Tango Tiger on Twitter where he will output all sorts of interesting stats. And uh, so Tom's here because we want to kind of get back into StatCast defense, right? And I know that's what everybody wants to know is how do we use StatCast to make defense better? And, uh, you know, I I think a a quick first start we got to is it's really a big part of it. How far does a player have to run? Like what is the distance from their start point to the projected endpoint of the ball? And how much time do they have to do it? Because obviously it's a big difference if you have two seconds to go 50 feet or if you have 10 seconds to go 50 feet. So I think that was a pretty good start point for us, uh, and that allows us to get into things like catch percentage, like this is a ball that's caught 12% of the time or caught 90% of the time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But Tom, what you've been doing, I think, is something that's pretty interesting, and you've been getting into uh, estimated sprint speed, which is our our tentative title for it. And what that really is, is it's measured in feet per second, right? And uh, it's kind of based a little bit off of Olympic sprinters. So tell me a little bit about how you kind of used uh, what we saw in the Olympics from Usain Bolt as a sort of a start point here. Yeah, so I was always interested in the Olympic runners ever since Ben Johnson. Uh, And they report the split times, which is how much time it takes for every 10 meters. So that's their split times. Uh, So I was able to find uh, that data for 20 runners, 20 of the fastest runners, including uh, Usain Bolt's uh, world record. And when I plotted the data, I was expecting to see some sort of parabolic shape so that you know, as you're running faster and faster, uh, the speed goes higher and higher. Uh, but what's interesting is that if you focus on just a segment of the data, and uh, if let's say you focus just at the uh, 10 meter to 40 meter, which is right around 30 to 130 feet, uh, it's fairly flat. It's almost like a constant velocity. Not exactly, but it's close enough. And that's really the range where we're interested uh, in with baseball players because they're going to run, let's say, up to about 130 feet on, on a field. Uh, base to base would be 90 feet and then maybe 180 if you're thinking about two bases. So when we look at that range, that particular range, it's a fairly constant velocity. Uh, so that's where we come up with the idea of a sprint speed. Uh, so just take two endpoints and just find out how much distance he covered over that amount of time. Yeah, and it's an interesting uh, error check, too, because if we come up with something that says an outfielder, even Billy Hamilton, is faster than Usain Bolt, we know that that's probably not going to pass the smell check. And, sure. and I mean, people ask me that all the time. Well, you know, these numbers come out to a, a poor, uh, you know, 40 time or whatever, but it's not really straight line speed. You know, it's baseball speed. You have to catch this small white object that's moving away from you and time that. So it's not really the, necessarily the fastest the guy could run in a straight line, right? Right, exactly. So he's got a lot of things going on. So there's also something about what I call startup time, which is how much time does it take him to get to that sprint speed so for uh, a runner for Usain Bolt and, and the other runners their their startup time is about one second uh, but when you look at uh, baseball players a little bit more especially on the field for a fielder would be different than for a base runner uh, so the idea also goes back to the the combine like you were talking about uh, everyone knows what a 4440 is that it's uh, elite level so now we'll be able to because we can segment all the data figure out for every fielder, every runner, every batter, 
uh, what their sprint speed is. And if we can isolate it just the right way, we should come up with the same number so that Adam Eaton would have a sprint speed of 30 feet per second, whether he's out in right field, center field, running the bases, or at bat. Yeah, and I think what's what's really interesting about this is one of the ways over the last few years that the uh, the public defensive metrics like DRS and UZR, which do a pretty decent job, but what's been hurting them is the increase in shifts, right? Like shifts are thousands and thousands over where they were a few years ago. And, you know, that kind of, it makes it more difficult. Like, are you giving credit to the fielder or to the coach who positioned him where maybe he's 10 feet away where otherwise he would have been 30 feet away? But now that we have the, the start point and the speed, we can kind of ameliorate that, right? It's not really going to matter so much because we just know how far away, regardless of where he actually was positioned. Right. We're going to be able to break down everything like that. So the speed is becomes a, a very powerful component. Uh, in addition to the speed component, there's also uh, the skill component. Uh, if you look at someone like Robbie Grossman, uh, he's a fast runner, and he comes in at the 30 feet per second like the other good outfielders, except in the zones where he should be catching balls, he doesn't, which means that he may be getting there, he's just not catching the ball. So there is the speed component, but then there's also the catching component. So it's it's almost uh, raw talent versus baseball instinct. That's how that breaks down. Right, exactly. And if you look at someone like Lorenzo Cain, uh, every ball that needs to get caught, let's say anything that requires less than 30 feet per second to, to be caught, he catches them. But someone like Grossman, it's not like that. So you can tell just by looking at a player's chart whether he's actually a reliable catcher just by seeing is he catching everything that he needs to catch. And this, this kind of takes me back to uh, thinking about Matt Kemp. And Matt Kemp has been somewhat unfairly our whipping boy. Like every time we think of a below average outfielder, we sort of use Matt Kemp as an example. Um, but I remember when he was with the Dodgers playing center, you know, 2008, 9, 10, he was winning gold gloves. And what I remember just eyeballing it at the time without the data in front of me was that he had relatively poor instincts, but because he was such an elite uh, runner and he stole 39 bases one year, he could outrun his mistakes. And then since then, you know, he's had multiple hamstring injuries. He really hurt his ankle. He's uh, over 30 years old now. The speed's just not there anymore. So he's still making the same mistakes without the speed to overcome it. And, you know, that's kind of what we're going to be able to, to break that down separately to show, you know, obviously we don't have the data for him in 2008, but I imagine if we did, we might see a straight line for instincts and a downward slope for speed, right? Right. It's good. It would be very exciting because that's the whole point is try to figure out how to break down everything. Speed is one thing. The jump is another. Just purely catching it is another. And then we're going to get into outfield arms as well, which will tie into base runners. So that's going to be another pretty exciting thing to look at. We're going to know where the runner was when the outfielder had the ball in his hand and how good was the outfield in terms of releasing it and then throwing it accurately and quickly to try to get the runner. So what is the difference between, uh, in terms of, of sprint speed, you know, good and poor? And I know, I want to make sure everybody knows we're very, very early in this process. So this is just sample data. Um, but it seems like the, the top guys, you know, the Hamiltons, the Buxtons are 32 feet or so per second and then the maybe the lesser guys who are still listen even the worst outfielders are still extremely good athletes uh maybe in the 23 24 25 feet per second range does that sound about right 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 exactly you'll see like 32 is the elite uh and 30 will be more common among the really good outfielders and then anything under 26 feet per second you're basically a slow runner and uh and then you'll also have something that'll come in at 24 or less feet per second if you have poor instincts. So that, you know, if it's a straight line speed, you could have a straight line speed of 26 feet per second, but if you're not getting there in a straight line, 
you're actually only covering it, let's say, 24 feet per second because you're getting there in a non-straight line fashion. And so that's kind of where route efficiency will come in. Because we, we've, I think, struggled a little bit in how to use that effectively because it's not always the best baseball play to go right to where the ball is going to land, like on a sack fly. Maybe you want to circle back around. But that, I think, will will tie in there because, as you say, it's it's you know we know, for example, you started 60 feet away from the ball. Uh, but you ran 70 feet to get to that point, right? right. And that's 10 feet of wasted to- of wasted distance and maybe, you know, one second of wasted time or whatever the numbers come out to be. I think that's how we're going to make that more useful. Right, exactly. Everything should, the, the, the currency really is feet and seconds. That's what everything is about. That's what everything, that's what people understand. That's why the, the 4440 is, is so held in high regard because it's purely seconds and feet or yards. Uh, so that's what people are going to be able to grasp. So uh, route effi- efficiency, I expect it's probably going to morph into something in terms of you know how many feet wasted as opposed to percentages. As well, we'd only focus on those plays where they actually need to run. So no one cares about a poor route efficiency if it only if you only needed 23 feet per second to get there. Uh, that won't matter. But where the plays matter that's where the route efficiency is going to matter. No, I want to, maybe I'm, I'm jumping ahead into the future here, but when you talk about uh, using, you know, Usain Bolt and, and those, those runners, they're always going straight, right? How will we account for the fact that outfielders have to go in different directions? Like, obviously, it, it's more effort and probably a little slower to run back than to run in, I would think. Right, exactly. And uh, we looked at that as well, the running in and running back. There's a definite difference. There's about two feet per second of difference. Uh, So then we're going to be able to account for that because we know their starting position, we know their ending position. So we know the degree in in terms of whether they run forward or back and and at what angle did they do that. So we'll account for that as well. And it'll be pretty exciting to figure out exactly if there's certain fielders that are, you know, good at running back and others are not. Now you mentioned earlier that uh, we'll be able to compare an outfielder's sprint speed to what he does running the bases, which I, I think is fascinating. Do you expect it to be? I mean, obviously, fast guys are fast guys, no doubt. But you know, it's a different it's a different skill in the sense that if you are in the field, you know, you're standing up, you're in position to run. If you're hitting, you're twisted, right? You've twisted yourself to swing around the bat. You've got to drop the bat. You've got to get moving. Uh, depending on what side of the plate you're hitting from, maybe in a different direction. Do you expect that that's going to cause different changes? Like, will we see a skill in that? Well, we would see a skill in that. So that would be part of, let's say, a startup, their startup time, their their acceleration phase. But for every one of them, whether it's at bat, running, or fielding, we'll isolate, let's say, the one-second window where we could make the comparison. So let's say maybe uh, as a batter, batter running the first, maybe when he's uh, running two-and-a-half to three-and-a-half seconds, maybe that's going to be the window that we can compare to a regular base dealer that maybe at two to three seconds, that's the comparison point. And maybe in an outfielder, it's at uh, three to four seconds. So we'll be able to figure it out because all we got to do is match up the exact same guy. So Adam Eaton, uh, as a batter, as a runner, as a fielder, uh, when he's going all out, at what point is he identical in all three? And once we isolate that for like 20 or 30 players, then we can say, well, if we want to compare a player's a speed, we can look at the three different types of components at these particular time windows, and then we'll know. So what I think I'm hearing, and I, I agree with you if I'm right, is that 
in the future, we should probably be getting away from using miles per hour to describe a player's speed, right? And it's more of a, a feet per second or a, you know, it took this many seconds to get from point A to point B. Right, exactly. I mean, again, going back to the combine, because it's very, very popular, and even the 100-meter the runners, no one converts Usain Bolt's 100-meter 9.6 second run into miles per hour. No one converts the, the 4.440 into miles per hour. We just know those numbers. We know what the world record is. We know what uh, top uh, combine speed is. And, and, and that's because it's in uh, a unit of measure that we, we live in, in the physical world. Uh, miles per hour is just something that is useful because people drive cars and they know when you're driving a car, you're going to compare two different cars. But there's really no sense in comparing a person running to how fast a car is moving. Right. And I think that's, that's a good example to show that, you know, we, we are still learning, too. Like this, the stuff we did in year one, we'll probably look back on in a couple of years and go, oh, why were we doing it that way? We should be doing it this way. Uh, but, you know, what's fascinating to me. And I say fascinating. I know this makes your job like 200 percent more difficult. Baseball is not played in consistent uh, in, in consistent environment. Right. Like we have to account for the fact that uh, there's huge outfields maybe in Colorado and then the tiny left field fence in Boston and in Houston. Uh, and then also the fact that on a windy day, you know, the ball could be blown maybe 20 feet away or even back to where the outfielder started from. Like that's, I know we don't have the answers to all that yet, right. but that's all the kind of stuff that we have to account for. And that kind of makes everything a lot more complicated, right? Yeah. I mean, there was a recent one in the world, uh, in the championship series with uh, Jock Peterson, where a ball was hit to his one side, but the ball landed to the other side. So he was kind of twisted. And there's a physics reason for it, and golfers know it as a, as a pull slice. And that's what happened to him. But So now that we know to look for it, now we can account for it. Because up until that play, we never really paid much attention to the idea of a pull slice. But now that we see it you know, in real life, we want to account for it so that we don't uh, you know, penalize a fielder. I looked at other fielders that that happened to, and they all had the same kind of reaction. So most were able to recover, but not all. Uh, Kevin Pillar didn't recover. Uh, I know you like him. <laughs> Who doesn't like Kevin <laughs> Pillar? <laughs> so so and, but there were other players like Ellsbury. He, he got twisted up, but he was able to recover it. And others were able to recover easier. So there's a lot of little things like that that happen in baseball that you wouldn't think about it. But once you start watching then you realize, oh, we need to account for this as well. Well, I think we had a great example of that in the NLCS where Andre Ethier uh, hit a home run that had absolutely no business being a home run. It was a windy day in Chicago. I think we looked it up. It was that that combination of batted ball, uh, exit velocity, and launch angle was something like one for 40 this year, and the one was just uh, two outfielders basically running into one another. Like That ball isn't out every single time, right. except this time it was a home run, and I thought that was an interesting story. Like, yeah, the pitcher got beat, but did he really get beat? I mean, he did his job, although it was a home run. I know that's kind of a little bit of cognitive dissonance there, but right. I thought that was interesting. Uh, I do have to ask you one more thing. Uh, totally different subject because you just kind of opened the door to it a little bit. You know, you mentioned slicing with the, with the ball, right? And we're starting to learn that uh, spin for a batted ball is extremely important, too. And I guess that makes sense. If it matters over 60 feet, 6 inches, it should matter over 400 feet, right? So we're showing, we're going to be able to show that you know, equally hit baseballs with different amounts of spin or spin direction should change the distance where they go for home runs, for example, right? Right. I just actually posted uh, something along those lines uh, yesterday on Twitter where I'm looking for, I, I focused on balls that were hit at the same speed and the same vertical launch angle, but the different spray angle. And the more you hit it, 
dead on, which is at around, let's say, 12 degrees away from center field. When you hit a dead on, it goes the farthest. And then the more you don't hit a dead on, the, the less the distance. And that's going to be related to the spin axis. Uh, so if you're going to get more side spin and less back spin, it's just going to have less carry to go uh, farther. And, and we're very early in the process, but it doesn't seem like a hitter has a ton of control over that, right? I mean, they can kind of change the angle of their swing, but it's really just about, you know, the, the placement of the bat against the ball, right? I right. I, I, mean, I mean, that's going to be the expectation. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if there's any players that are, have a specific skill set like that. If, let's say, a Joey Votto, he's always going spraying the ball, so maybe he's intentionally doing something as opposed to, let's say, an Encarnacion or Bautista who always try to pull the ball. Uh, so they're not going to try to slice it in, in any way. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see that. Uh, but also like the spray angle itself has very little skill component beyond just the player, his, you know, the way his bat plane is. Uh, it's not like they're trying to place the ball at a particular vector because with all the fielders, you know, you, you got your seven fielders, there's gaps in between them. But then if you miss the gap, you're going to get the player. So it's as if you have a whole bunch of sand traps out there. It's not like you can try to avoid them uh, because you've got a ball coming at you. Uh, unlike if you were hitting off T, you could place it. But if it's coming at you, you don't really have much control over the spray ability so there, there are players who are hitters who are you know are pull hitters like brian dozier extreme pull hitter david ortiz extreme pull hitter and players who spread it all the way around but beyond like being a pull hitter you can't really distill it further down than that as though he's a guy who is trying to hit it between the shortstop and the third baseman right that's it's what we're a, learning that's exactly correct because if you look at the distribution curve for all all of the hitters with that exception they all follow a same the same kind of bell curve so there's like a peak point where each batter has his own peak point, and then the distribution falls off very cleanly. Uh, if, a, if a player did have a particular skill in that regard, we'd see peaks and valleys, and that's not what we see. Right. Oh, that's exciting. I mean, that's a, that's the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? I right, mean, right. I the, mean, we're, we're learning something every day. So. Yeah, and I, I hope this is a, a good explainer of just how much data there is. I mean, we, we, you know, we are the 31st team, I guess. All 30 teams have access to the same data, so everyone's approaching it um, a little bit differently. But really, you know, everybody always asks me about defense, and it's, it's really cool to see the new ways we're able to think about that. Uh, so, Tom, thanks for spending a few minutes with me here. That's Tom Tango. Follow him on Twitter, at Tango Tiger. Uh, I am your host, Mike Petriello. No show next week, most likely because of the holiday. We'll be back after that. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Podcast.